The Lord be with you. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to Matthew. Jesus again, in reply, spoke to the chief priests and elders of the people in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be likened to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. He dispatched his servants to summon the invited guests to the feast, but they refused to come. A second time he sent other servants, saying, Tell those invited, Behold, I have prepared my banquet My calves and fatted cattle are killed, and everything is ready. Come to the feast. Some ignored the invitation and went away, one to his farm, another to his business. The rest laid hold of his servants, mistreated them, and killed them. The king was enraged and sent his troops, destroyed those murderers, and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The feast is ready but those who were invited were not worthy to come. Go out, therefore, into the main roads and invite to the feast whomever you find. The servants went out into the streets and gathered all they found, bad and good alike, and the hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to meet the guests, he saw a man there not dressed in a wedding garment. The king said to him, My friend, how is it that you came in here without a wedding garment? but he was reduced to silence. Then the king said to his attendants, bind his hands and feet and cast him into the darkness outside where there will be wailing and grinding of teeth. Many are invited, but few are chosen. The Gospel of the Lord. Jack, what's your son's name? Luca. Luca? I was thinking... I think it was Luca who was calling out, because I thought he said, like, Daddy, as you were reading. So it was really cool. Um, But I was thinking about this, like, okay, we're hearing a story today about a wedding feast. And the wedding feast is a parable that's meant to be the imagery of what we come to understand as the mass. You know, the, the king is God the Father, the servants that he sends out are the prophets and the, uh, the Old Testament prophets, and then later on the New Testament, the apostles. And they go out to the people to invite them to this massive party. And, and they, they don't come. And I was thinking again about just about wedding feasts, and like, when we come to a wedding, right, like, we love having kids at weddings. Like, what's up, Luca? And, and we, we don't complain about them being there. In fact, most of the time, people want them to, like, be the, the ring bearers and the flower girls. I even had one wedding that they wanted to like have the kids ride in on like electric cars. <laughs> I shut that down real fast. <laughs> I said, no, um, that's not happening. They even like, and there was another group was like, oh, let's just pull them on a wagon. I'm like, no, if they can't walk, they're not in the bridal party. End of story. But like we rejoice at the idea of, of children in, in a good way. Jesus throughout the scriptures right? Rejoices, bring the kids to me, bring the kids to me, right? And I, I bring all this up because, like, I appreciate when we hear the kids in the Mass. Now, there's times out of prudence that if they're having a meltdown, we should probably get up and care for them and, like, step out for sure, for sure. But, like, the, the involuntary laugh and the involuntary words, like, 
are actually reminders of great joy and delight for us. So I just want to say thanks, Luca. Appreciate you, man. And, and in the back, I think I've heard them a little bit too. Like, and people will say, oh, I'm so sorry my kids had a meltdown today. And I'm like, I did not notice it. Now, the people around you may have noticed it, but I did not notice it. Um, and, and even if we do, and even if there is a quote-unquote distraction, right? Uh, I can't hear the, the cantor very well today, or the lecture butchered that word, or uh, yeah, there's kids everywhere, the train's going by, whatever. <laughs> right on cue. The, the thing for us to consider, and this is what we need to consider every time we go to Mass, why am I here? I should be here for one very bold and blatant answer, and it's for Christ. I should be here for Him. And if I'm in a state of grace to receive communion, I should be here being attentive so that I can receive Him well. If I'm not able to receive communion, if I'm, if I'm not in a state of grace, or I'm not Catholic, whatever it is, like, I should be here to give him my all. I can still receive him spiritually. And so I just, I just want us to always keep that as a reminder of the focus of why we are here is to worship him, is to give praise to him. Along the way, hopefully we learn something, hopefully we get a little insight, hopefully we have some laughs and some joys, but, but regardless, it's about him. Everything else is, is just bonus. So again, this parable, it's, it's the third parable we've heard in a row, the third week in a row, really. And this constant theme has been, who's getting into heaven, right? Is it the people who think they're getting into heaven, or is it someone else? And Jesus, who is he talking to? Chief priests and elders, right? He's talking to the ones who are presuming they've got some free ticket that they're just going to make it in no matter what. And he's just putting them back in their place. He's reminding them that that may not be necessarily true. It may not be false, but he's trying to broaden their horizon. So once again, the parable, right? King in the story is God, prepares a heavenly banquet for his son, Jesus, right? Servants are the Old Testament prophets, called to summon Israel. The invited guests, those are us, right? And then the other servants he sends, the apostles, right? And he invites, he says, go out and, and, take, and bring anyone, good or bad, right? So he's saying, bring the Gentiles, bring the non-believers, bring the people who were never even thought to be on the invite list to begin with. So Jesus, in this story, right, is challenging the chief priests and elders, the Israelite people, the chosen race, and saying, guess what? God, he's got a party for us in heaven, and he wants everyone there. And those who have been invited, you've been flaking out on your duties. You've been flaking out on what's necessary. So the parable, it, it highlights God's impartial treatment of all who are called, Jews and Gentiles alike. And it, he rewards and punishes on the basis of one's acceptance or rejection of his call. He's not rewarding or punishing based off of you're the chosen ones and you're not the chosen ones. It's based off of how they respond or reject the invitation. So, non-believer accepts the invitation, probably going to get the reward. 
the one who's the chosen one who rejects the invitation, probably going to face some punishment. That just makes logical sense. Because God's logical. You know, he's smart. He gave us the intellect. Because he's the intellect. And so it's really improper for us in the modern era, 500 years ago, 1,000 years ago, you know, the first early centuries of the church, it's wrong of us to say, well, that's not fair. Why? Because it's God's judgment. It's his rules. This is his creation. We just get to participate in it. Like when, we, when will we get that through our heads, that we have received gift from him, we are gift, and we're gift to each other, that we're just, we're just playing in his sandbox, right? He set, he set it all up, and he set us up for success. I'm just either rejecting or accepting his parameters. So this marriage feast that we see, oh, sorry, I need to finish this. So we are creatures of the creator, servants of the master, submissive to the one who is greater. That's what we got to get through our heads. Okay. So the marriage feast, right, is this image of rejoicing. It's an image of communion with God. Like, it's the thing we want to be at. Like, that's what mass is. Mass is the marriage feast. Now, I could come up here and say, where's your wedding garment? You might be thinking, well, what is a wedding garment? I will get to that at the end. Don't worry. But that first reading we heard in Isaiah, there's actually, this is the most direct correlation that we get as far as the idea of the marriage feast is from that Isaiah reading, that this celebration God set up, and and it's what Jesus is referring to. But the marriage feast is happening now. It's not something that happened in the past, and it's not something that's going to happen in the future, though it will. It's happening now. How? Through the Holy Eucharist. Through our participation in the worship to God. And again, back to the idea of like, you know, the kids crying out and all that stuff. Jesus, at the Last Supper, right, the the idea of the first Mass, it didn't look anything like this. You know, the the tradition of the church has formed and helped to create this structure, which has been good. Um, And we can look at Uh, the old Passover celebrations, and we find direct correlations to there about reading scripture and offering thanksgiving and prayers and petitions and then having some celebration. And yet, we, I think, have gotten so rigid. Like, one of the things I love about the church is is the continuity. Uh, The tradition of the fact that I could go to any Catholic church in the world, whether I understand the language or not, and I can at least follow along with the concept of the Mass and I can worship God, and I could receive communion. The, the most important things I can do. And yet, like, this, I don't know if I've ever shared this or not, um, in the Byzantine Rite, in the Eastern Rite churches, uh, they're, if, you ever, if you've never been, it's really beautiful, but they're focused on, like, icons and stuff. They have a lot of big icons up here. And there's this idea of entering and exiting. But the thing is, they don't have pews. So they would just stand or sit on the ground and I was listening to a podcast one time uh, of of two eastern rite priests and they're they're talking about growing up and how their communities are a lot smaller but 
they'd be at church celebrating the liturgy, and the kids would literally just be running around between the families. And, like, you knew everyone, so it wasn't a big deal. Like, if it was your kid or not, you would just grab them and be like, all right, pay attention now, right? Um, but, like, that, that sense of community of, like, that's not going to be the thing that breaks me. Uh, I don't know. I just, I think that's beautiful. So the marriage feast is now, right? Holy Eucharist, Christ's banquet, sacramental food and drink. The future concept of it is the communion with Christ in heaven. Again, kingdom of heaven, what he's, what he's saying here. Venerable Fulton Sheen had this quote that he's accredited for, and it's, he says this. He says, if I were not a Catholic and I were looking for the true church in the world today, I would look for the church which the world hates. Think about that. Unfortunately, in, in some sense, we have the thousands of different Christian denominations. And, and he's pointing out, I wasn't Catholic. Right? So he's acknowledging like Catholicism as one true church. He said, if I wasn't Catholic and I was looking for the true church in the world, I would look for the church which the world hates. And that, that should really stir up some thoughts in us. What are we looking for as the people who are invited to the marriage feast? Am I looking for the things that fit my agenda, my opinions, my views? Or am I looking for a place that gives me truth that might challenge some of those aspects, but ultimately wants the best for me? And that's a hard thing to even understand too, of like accepting truth that that we could be wrong about something. A prayer that we as a church need to have consistently in Mass and out of Mass is the prayer for the reunification of the faithful. And it's been on my heart a lot. The reunification of people that we are one set of believers. That for the first few centuries, first 800 years of the church, there was no Catholic. It was church. It was Christian, right? And then you get the schisms, and then you get the reformations. And, and we, we always need to be developing and correcting and changing. We need to be growing. We can't remain stagnant. We can't remain ignorant. Things have to be fixed. But, but in the fixing, we shouldn't break off. We shouldn't separate and say, well, I no longer like that. I'm going to go do that thing. That, that's problematic because that's division. Christ, I actually know. <laughs> There's some uh, meme out there that says, so we know St. Paul writes letters, right? Yes or yes? Good. So we know that he writes letters to other churches, right? Corinth, Ephesians, all that. And he usually writes letters to them because they screwed up. There's a meme out there of St. Paul writing a letter to the Church of America. He says, Dear Church of America, where do I start? Really? Like, yeah, where do I start? 
You could say modern church. Where do I start? So this wedding feast, this marriage, right? People were invited and said, I'd rather go to work. I'd rather stay at home today. I'd rather do this thing over there or that thing over there. I actually reject your son's celebration. I don't want to be at it. And in fact, if you come and tell me again, I'm probably going to beat you up. That's the story. That's the parable. And yet God doesn't just, you know, wrap it up and say, fine, forget about it. We're not going to have the wedding anymore. He says, fine. If you don't want it, I'll find other people that do. And that's where he opens it up to the world. That's why Christ, when he takes on flesh, he becomes incarnate. He becomes one for all of us to have relationship with. Right? Because he wants to know us. He wants to know me. He wants to know you. And he wants to have a deep, intimate relationship with us. He didn't just do this willy-nilly. He did this with great intentionality. He did this with great purpose. And he did it for us. He didn't just do it for the apostles 2,000 years ago. He didn't just do it for the early church. He didn't just do it for the medieval church. He did it for us. We've got to get that through our head. And so, respect and reverence for the Mass, respect and reverence for God, respect and reverence for what He has done. What do I owe Him? Everything. I can't give him enough. So when he says, give me an hour once a week, it's like, done, check, easy. But I've got a huge section here missing. It's mainly because I don't think anyone wants to be in my spray section, which is fine. You can wear trench coats next time. But like, I know that you know that I know that there are more people here in town that are not here right now. And the thing is, you know them better than I do. Invite them. Drag them. Implore them. Whatever. Bribe them. You know? I'm going to start giving rewards to people sitting in the front. You want a candy bar? Can you come in the front, right? I know the kids will run up here. I see you. I see you, Mackie. Your head perked up for a second. This invitation has gone out and it's just been rejected. God is doing as much as he possibly can do, right? He does everything to let the people have a chance. And he still gets rejected. They still say, nah, not for me. So an invitation sometimes isn't enough. It's where we have to start, right? We should always be inviting. But it's actually not enough for me just to say, oh, I got the invite. I, no, I have to act. I have to do. I have to respond. You know, I, I think my generation, I would, argue, I would argue people in their 40s and younger are awful at responding to RSVPs. I think if I had to take 40 and younger versus uh, 41 and older, I think the 41 and older group wins that battle every time. 
because of that respect, that, that reverence, that honor of like, I, I owe you an acknowledgement. And the younger generation, my generation and younger, right, we just don't really care about that anymore, which is unfortunate because God is constantly inviting us and we're just choosing not to show up, right? So, back to that final part, right? Because that final part's a little unnerving, right? He's invited everyone. They've, the ones that have shown up, the good and the bad, and all of a sudden he looks and says, you, where's your wedding garment? Why didn't you, why didn't you change? Why didn't you show up? Why didn't you do something different? Throw them out. Ugh. So even if I do show up, I could still get kicked out. So what's the wedding garment, right? Oftentimes we, we say the wedding garment is our baptism. And, and there's a truth to that, right? We put on a, a baptismal garment. We're, we're made pure in baptism. We're, we're adopted in the family of God. So there's, there's definitely a connection there. But clearly, right, the Gentiles were the non-believers, right? And there's still people in the world who have never been baptized. There are people who reject God and, and reject the ideas of God. So the garment isn't only baptism. It's a piece, but it's not the only thing. could be the state of our soul, Right? So again, if I'm in a state of grace, if I'm outside that state of grace, that could have an impact on me. I can fix that, though. Confession. In the commentaries, they say that a, the wedding garment is a symbol of righteous deeds that accompany the faith. So now we're thinking, okay, hold on. That means, like, my faith means I have to do something with it? Like, faith and works? Oh, that's a real thing? I shouldn't reject that? Correct. Like, Righteous deeds accompanying my faith. My faith causes me to do righteous stuff, right? So Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, outlines it in, in chapter 6. I'm just going to give you a quick highlight, right? So some of that's almsgiving, right? The righteousness that what I've received, uh, I give back, right? To some degree, right? There's the idea of almsgiving. Prayer. Like, again, the worship, what I offer to God outside of just my financials, my resources, I give him prayer. I, I have communication. I have conversation with him. Fasting, which is really interesting. Again, my righteous deeds of my faith call me to fast, call me to sacrifice, call me to offer up for the will and good of others. And then lastly, uh, the wedding garment, the righteous deeds associated with my faith are works of mercy. Right? And so the works of mercy are so vast and yet it's, it's so available to us. Um, praying for the dead, caring for the dead, taking care of the homeless. Um, so corporal and spiritual works of mercy. What we hear today should be for us motivation to step up. Motivation to say, I cannot wait to get the invite to the wedding. I've been waiting for this. I've been waiting for this celebration. I cannot wait to go. I'm going to put on my best stuff. I'm going to be there with bells on. The motivation to say, Lord, you get it all. You get the best. And I know it's not enough, but I'm going to give you what I can. The motivation to say, man, we got work to do. We got people to invite. We got pews to fill. We've got stuff happening. 
I'm so excited. And I hope you are. Because the Lord wants and is doing stuff here. It's hard for me to see that sometimes, right? Because I want it all right now. Another uh, ill effect of my generation. I want it right now. I want the church full right now. I want sacraments out the wazoo right now. I want it all right now. And the Holy Spirit uh, does not, he can, uh, but requires us to be prepared. One of the, the final thought, when uh, in the seminary we would often do mission trips during our breaks, uh, fall and, and spring breaks. We'd go to different universities. We would go out two by two and share the gospel with the students. is awesome. But we would only go to the places that had a network ready to receive an abundance of new people. So we'd go to places that had uh, focused missionaries and really active campus ministries because our intent was to go out and like revitalize the, the, the campus community to get people to go to their stuff. And if there was no one there to receive them, like what, what happens? Like if everyone's excited about something, they all show up and then there's no one there to take care of it, they all leave, right? And so, yeah, there's a lot of opportunity and motivation for us of like what could happen, but it actually has to start with us, the ones that are here right now. It has to start with, with the people that are showing up. Like we have to get prepared for the the massive flow of people to come back. Because if, 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 if we're not ready, you and I are not ready, they'll show up and then they'll just leave because there will be no one to receive them. So our motivation is especially for ourselves to be prepared to say, I want this and I'm ready to grow so that I can welcome whoever comes after, whoever comes next. So in that prayer, a lot of things, right? But our 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 spiritual task for this week is to pray for the reunification of the church, right? We should do that every day, all the time. But it's also to say and pray for ourselves to get what we need to prepare for the revitalization, to prepare for the resurgence, to prepare for uh, what's to come. Because if we're not prepared, uh, we won't be able to receive them. Because I, I can't do it by myself. I'm exhausted most of the time. And I'm sure you are too, in different ways. But we should be exhausted out of joy. And, and I can say with a, with a clean heart, I'm exhausted out of joy. Uh, I should probably take more naps. But naps and I don't get along, so side the point. We should spend ourselves for the Lord. Um, so that's our prayer. Unification preparing ourselves for whatever's about to come.